Recorded live in a series of ones and zeros, it's Transformation Thursday. My name is Jamie Rodriguez, and my pronouns are she, her. My name is Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. Tonight, Transformation Thursday General Counsel Jamie Rodriguez returns to provide us her insight into the decision handed down by the United States Supreme Court in the case of Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. While to many of us fighting for LGBTQIA rights may seem like a stunning setback, Jamie is here to break down this very nuanced decision and what it means and what the court is signaling in their opinion and the numerous concurrences. But before we do that, we will be right back after this short message. Hey folks, it's Amy Stevens and on July 28th, the women of the Transformation Thursday podcast, myself, General Counsel Jamie Rodriguez and co-host Emeritus Penny Sterling are hosting and producing Rochester's Summer Pride Comedy and Storytelling Show at the Comedy at the Carlson here in Rochester. A portion of the evening's proceeds will benefit the Rochester LGBTQ plus mutual aid group and the GoFundMe for Penny Sterling's facial feminization surgery. We have a great lineup of Rochester-based comics, including... Sarah Cannon, Kai Von Doom, Todd Youngman, and closing out the show will be Cindy Arena. In addition to these excellent comics, Penny Sterling will be telling another fascinating story, and Jamie Rodriguez will be making her Rochester stage debut. Remember, the Rochester Pride Comedy and Storytelling Show is one night only on July 28th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are on sale now at carlsoncomedy.com. Go now, get your tickets, because this show most likely will sell out. That's carlsoncomedy.com for your tickets. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Jamie Rodriguez and my pronouns are she, her. My name is still Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her. Jamie, uh, there's been some changes in the podcast, haven't there? Yes, there has. Why don't you tell us about <laughs> Why are you laughing like that? I don't understand. What's going on here? I guess I'm going to be appearing more often. <laughs> yeah, that's the rumor. Yeah, so so that is one of the changes. So Jamie has agreed that uh, she has started her own podcast that I co-host and edit every once in a while called Amicus Querier. Am I pronouncing that right, Jamie? Amicus Amicus Querier, yes. Yeah, okay. Querier, Querier, something. Um, so these episodes with Jamie are going to be... Um, Double purpose, one for her podcast for Amicus, and uh, we'll also use a segment here on Transformation Thursday, a little bit of cross promotion, but then also Jamie's very busy in her professional career in life. So this is some allows her to double dip and still keep her toes in the um, LGBTQ law area that she likes to do research in and um, but not do copious amounts of research on. But of course, we should probably also talk about Penny Sterling for a quick second, shouldn't we? Yeah, I think that's appropriate. Yeah, so do I. So I don't want to get too much into details or anything. However, Penny has decided to step back from the podcast. And as I have posted on the Transformation Thursday public page and as well in the Transformation Thursday group, if Penny ever wants to come on to Transformation Thursday again to discuss anything, produce her own episode or whatever it is, she always has a welcome place here on Transformation Thursday. And uh, the three of us are going to be participating in a live comedy and storytelling event here in Rochester, New York on July 28th of this year. 
Um, and Penny is going to be part of that as well as you, Jamie. So, you know, we, we'll, we'll be reunited again in person, if not in binary code. Well, I know if, if, um, if Penny's out there listening, I'm, uh, you know, I know you've told her that you would welcome her as a, uh, as a, as a guest host now and again. So um, I hope that at some point she takes you up on that. Yeah. And you know what, and, if she wants to come on and give me a week off, I would be up for that as well. So, you know, whatever it is that she wants, you know, whenever she's ready to come back to the podcasting world, if she wants to do it here, she's welcome to do it. But I think we should jump in and talk about this Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia business. Yeah. So this um, opinion came out Thursday or Friday. So yeah, the Fulton v. Um, City of Philadelphia came out on uh, Thursday, the 17th. Um, so it's brand new and just been uh, reading it over the weekend now. So it's been one of those cases that, you know, typically June is the month where the Supreme Court uh, releases its its biggest cases so uh, of the past year. And this is one of those. So they heard this case um, back in November, I believe, and you know, that means they've been, you know, working on and on their opinions um, for most of their term. Any, anyway, typically, many of the Supreme Court's biggest um, decisions will be released in June, um, you know, before they go on their summer break, if you will. I was going to um, ask if they take a summer vacation. So that was, you they, know. they do, they do. So uh, yeah, sometime. Um, so July, August, you know, the Supreme Court's usually not nearly as busy. So what was that issue in this case? Um, and, and why is it, why is it bad, but not as bad as it could be? I think that's um, kind of the takeaway. What was that issue was um, a contract by the city of Philadelphia with... It was a contract for foster care. It was it foster care and adoption or just foster care? So Catholic Social Services, uh, which goes, by, which in the opinion, you know, is abbreviated CSS. So CSS um, provides foster care. They're a foster care agency. Um, they do, they do uh, other things, but there are, the issue here was that they pro- provided foster care services for the city of Philadelphia. And they've been doing that for a long time. Part of the process that a foster care agency goes through in before it places a child with a foster parent is it does some uh, it does a home study, and as part of a home study, it looks at the family's ability to provide care, the the nurturing and supervision to children, their ability their existing family relationships, the ability to work in partnership with the foster agency. So those are all part of the criteria that they use to certify a family or not. CSS being a Catholic entity. Is this a spoiler alert time? Marriage is a, and this is from the opinion, sacred bond between a man and a woman. That's what CSS states in in their brief. And then they've said that publicly. So they view endorsement of a family of a same-sex couple for, you know, if they were to certify a same-sex couple for the foster care system, they would view that as inconsistent with their religious. It's against their religious values. What's that? It's against their religious values is what they're going to state. Yeah, exactly. And And it, 
And it turned out in this case, no same-sex couple had ever sought certification from CSS. I think most same-sex couples probably are not applying to the Catholic Church for much of anything if they can avoid it, knowing what the Catholic Church's beliefs are. Yeah, but because in Philadelphia, there's 22 other organizations, if I remember right from the news coverage, that do um, these type of services beyond CSS. Yeah, there there are a bunch of others. It's it's actually inconsistently stated in the opinion. So the main opinion by Roberts says 20 other services. Uh, Gorsuch cites 27. Bottom line is there are a lot of other foster care agencies that will place children with same-sex couples. So, you know, that's really the reason why no one had gone to CSS for that. But the city became aware of the the church's position and uh, held a meeting with them and essentially told them after that meeting that they were not going to renew their contract. And so um, CSS lost out they lost that contract and, and were no longer able to provide foster care um, services. And what they allege is that this, this freezing of, of their ability to provide the contract, uh, the foster care services, was a violation of their free exercise rights under the First Amendment. And uh, also they made a free speech claim as well. Um, ultimately, this is decided on free exercise grounds. So um, the, the free speech uh, angle is really not not argued, not discussed in the opinion. What do you say free exercise, free exercise of religion? Yeah, so the, in the First Amendment provides that Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. So. Okay. Yeah, that's what the free exercise clause is. Just trying to get the con law 101 stuff in for for yeah, yeah, that's you know that's where you, you start. What's the constitutional language, right? So um, you know, and and the you know as the court says, the city's rule does impact CSS's provision of services and in in their mind their exercise of their 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 religion. So then it becomes a question of you know, whether, whether it does so in a way that violates the Constitution. And the big kind of sticking point in this case, one of the main issues why it was granted was, so one of the big questions is whether the court would overturn case that goes by Smith, um, typically, but it's uh, Employment Division, Department of Human Resources of Oregon versus Smith, which was a 1990 case, authored by Justice Scalia, who's, you know, often considered to be... Pretty conservative, um, you know, kind of a conservative icon. Uh, but in, in Employment Division v. Smith, the rule that basically came out of that was governments could enact um, generally applicable, you know, neutral laws, and those would apply to religious institutions also. So, you know, if if a if a, a statute, either a you know a city ordinance or a municipal ordinance or or a state law. Uh, was generally applicable, so it didn't single out religious institutions, you know, and it it was neutral toward religion, then it wasn't subject to strict scrutiny, you know, and if a law is subject to strict scrutiny, it has to be, you know, supported by a compelling government interest and also has to use the least restrictive means. And so typically, if strict scrutiny applies, then it's very hard to withstand a strict scrutiny analysis and laws are typically overturned. 
Well, strict scrutiny, just so we're clear, that is examining the constitutionality of a law, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. So to go back to Common Law 101, if you will, so there's typically described uh, three levels of scrutiny, if you will. So strict scrutiny is that highest level, and a law has to be, you know, support a compelling government interest and, um, you know, kind of be the least restrictive uh, way of going about it. So if there's any other way that's um, you could accomplish uh, the government interest that doesn't meet strict scrutiny. The, there's a kind of an intermediate scrutiny, which is often applied to um, gender-based uh, restrictions. And so, you know, restrictions on the, on the, that, uh, that applied only to women, for example, will, will have this heightened level of scrutiny. It's not quite strict scrutiny, but it's it's easiest if you look at it in relation to rational basis. So the three levels are, um, like I said, um, strict scrutiny, intermediate, and then there's rational basis review. Under rational basis, a law only has to, you know, have a rational basis, and the means that it's carried, you know, the justification for it, they can even even be made up after the fact. All, you know, most many laws will pass rational basis. There there have been holdings. Um, that you know, discrimination against LGBT community um, uh, don't pass even rational basis. There's not even a rational reason to ha have a have a law that uh, has as its purpose the uh, discrimination against the um, same-sex couples, for example, or just LGBT people. And so that was uh, the case in in Romer, for example. Romer v. Evans was the uh, uh, it's a Colorado amendment that uh, basically you know, held that uh, gay, homosexual and bisexual people could not claim any um, any uh, rights or discrimination under Colorado law. Um, it was a it was an amendment to the Colorado Constitution that directly targeted the LGBT community, and you know, basically it was overturned in a Justice Kennedy uh, decision, and you know, basically they said that that's doesn't even meet rational basis, you know, it's, it's, it's formed out of an animus toward the community, toward the community. So you have strict scrutiny at the top, rational basis is kind of, you know, super easy for governments to justify. Strict scrutiny is very hard for governments to justify. And then in the middle, you have this intermediate scrutiny that applies mostly to gender-based um, limitations or, or restrictions. Under rational basis, the justifications can even be hypothetical, you know, they can be thought of after the fact, and they can be hypothetical considerations. Under intermediate scrutiny, you actually have to look at actual actual facts and actual situations. And, and um, while it's not as compelling an interest as strict scrutiny, it's, it's, it's harder. And so anyway, that's a long way of getting around to if a law is under Smith, if a law is neutral and generally applicable, strict scrutiny doesn't apply. And then you just have cities just have to have a rational basis for it. So in in Fulton, you know, the a lot of a lot of laws can be drafted in neutral and generally applicable ways that will then have some impact on religious practices. And religious institutions and certain members of the court don't like that. You know, they they want to be able to do this kind of searching review of, you know, every possible impact that a law could have and strike down, either strike down the law in its in their entirety, or at least provide a religious exception to generally applicable laws that, that burden religion. And 
you know, that was one of the one of the issues that was that the court was looking at is should they overturn Smith? You know, should they go back to 1990 and say that was wrongly held? That that allows government to impose too much of a restriction on on religion, and that's what certain parts of the conservative certain conservative members of the court really wanted to do. Let me just, it's kind of interesting if you look at the length of this opinion and how long different portions of it were. So the overall, the actual opinion in Fulton is only 16 pages, you know, drafted by Chief Justice Roberts. And then there's a concurrence by Amy Amy Barrett Comey, which is like three pages in length. And then following that, there's an Alito concurrence in the judgment. And that goes on for 78 pages arguing why Smith should have been overturned. And so the difference between, so Barrett concurring was basically agreeing with Robert's uh, decision that we don't have to overturn Smith to decide this case. And Kavanaugh jumped in on that one, right? He, he did, yes. Yeah. So yeah, Barrett and Kavanaugh both on in concurrence with the Chief Justice. Alito, joined by Thomas and Gorsuch, they concurred in the judgment because ultimately this case held for um, Catholic Social Services, CSS. So their their side won, if you will, but they wanted to overturn Smith to, to kind of set that larger precedent that would make it harder to impose laws, even neutral laws, that have, a rest- have an impact on religion in some neutral way. So you why know? isn't this a 7-2? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting what and I'm speculating a little bit here I'm, uh, about what happened. You know, if you look at the length of the Alito concurrence, I wonder if as they were drafting, was Alito actually drafting the primary opinion? And often what happens in the, at the Supreme Court is, you know, at some point, one of the justices gets assigned the, the job of drafting, you know, the, the main opinion. And, and that justices, clerks often do a lot of that work. And then the they try and sign people on, and if you have an, um, if you have a close opinion, there might, you know, there might be, you know, one justice drafting the primary opinion and another justice drafting the dissent. If it's say five to four, well, if one person on the on the concurrent side switches sides, all of a sudden that dissent can become a, uh, the primary opinion, and now you have the other side becomes the dissent. You know, the fact that Alito's wrote such a long concurrence, it almost seems like, you know, maybe maybe that was the primary opinion at one point in time. And Justice Roberts was able to pick off, you know, Comey Barrett and Kavanaugh. And, and by doing so, he was able to get a unanimous opinion because he was able to get the, the liberal justices to, to sign on in, in a way that didn't overturn um, Smith. So the liberals got the fact that Smith is still good law, but the conservatives got kind of the fact that Fulton, you know, Catholic CSS wins in this instance. And the reason CSS win, I, I, I think, I think it's worth looking at why, you know, the Roberts opinion found for CSS. If you want me to go through that, well, I think looking at it real quickly. I mean, it just looks like it says okay. You can carve out exceptions, and you have some, and the city of Philadelphia was picking and choosing some exceptions, but it wasn't allowing exceptions then for religious-based organizations that, you know, held that, you know, marriage, as we spoke about a little bit ago, is between a man and a woman. So 
if you're going to give one set of exceptions over here to this group, you also have to give some to religion. So I think in that, and what you just talked about is that narrow, deciding on that narrow principle is probably what held one for Smith not to be overturned, and two, then it allowed for the court to come in and make a unanimous decision in favor of CSS on those limited grounds. Is that pretty accurate from this very, very, very novice um, legal mind? No, I think you did. You you did very well there. I um, in some you may you may or may not have explained it before we started recording in a way that I could understand. Yeah, no, I think the the core of it, of the holding is that if you have a statutory scheme that lets the the state or the city or you know whatever the jurisdiction is grant exceptions to the scheme, you know, so that's providing essentially some some discretion to the government to grant exceptions and the scheme impacts religion then they're going to apply strict scrutiny to those 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 in those situations and the scheme is going to have to meet the strict scrutiny standard and here the the Philadelphia statute on providing foster care services did have an exception or a process for granting exceptions. Now, Philadelphia hadn't actually granted exceptions um, and they had kind of implied that they wouldn't grant one to CSS. But the fact that those exceptions existed allowed the court to say, this was not a neutral and generally applicable rule because you could grant exceptions and you wouldn't grant them to CSS. Whereas in theory, they might've granted them to someone else. And, and that's kind of what saves this scheme under Smith. And then, you know, I, I think, you know, that may be why Barrett and, and Kavanaugh um, signed on. But there is this kind of judicial theory of trying to decide cases on, on, on kind of the narrowest grounds. Um, and so if they don't have to overturn another precedent, the Supreme Court will often uh, try to decide a case uh, in a way that doesn't require that. And so, you know, here they, they could say, look, this isn't even general and neutral and generally applicable because uh, there's this discretion exists and they're not providing an exception to CSS, uh, you know, where, where they can read between the lines, probably should. So therefore, we don't have to overturn Smith in order to decide this in CSS's favor. The result is CSS is going to get if nothing changes, CSS will be eligible to get a contract with the city. And so they'll be able to continue to providing foster care services, even though they won't certify same-sex families for foster care. Presumably they will still keep referring same-sex families to other providers if they're called. So it kind of maintains the status quo of what existed before. I think the reason that this is, you know, scary to, to the LGBTQ community is you can invent, you can imagine a situation where, you know, maybe you're in a city where there's only one foster care provider and that foster care provider is the Catholic church. So then families in that city or that town only have one person to go to, to get certified and they're going to be discriminated against. And that's kind of the worst case. And there's also the, you know, the general sense that, you know, whether something is a public accommodation, if you're if you're holding out services to the general 
public, you know, you shouldn't be able to discriminate against the LGBTQ community in doing that, you know, and that kind of general, you know, and this, this kind of goes against that general principle and belief. So it, 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 it is a loss in, in that sense. The reason I think it's not as bad as it could have been, because if they would have overturned Smith, you know, as Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch want to do, then any law that burdens religion would be subject to strict scrutiny. You would have courts having to dig in, look into even even minor burdens on on religion could be um, could be overturned. You know, either and I don't know. In some cases, courts would overturn a, a law in its entirety. In other cases, they might just carve out an exception for um, religious-based discrimination. I think that is the scarier, Smith had been overturned, I think it would have been worse. And so while not, not the win that we hoped for in this case, it's better than that. That's quite a way of summing that up. Better than the alternative. Well, that's kind of the scary thing, you know. So anything that has any hint of burdening religion you know, and I would call it virtue signaling is that, you know, those conservative justices with that 78 page monstrosity have basically said, hey, if there's anything that out there, the religious community wants to challenge Smith, you have at least three votes, if not two more with Comey Barrett and Kavanaugh. You know, if you're deciding on that strict piece alone, just evaluating Smith, that's a 5-4 decision going the other way. And, you know, and throwing out that super liberal decision from Scalia in 1990, <laughs> you know. That yeah, liberal... you know, it's interesting. The, uh, um, the, the Smith case actually led to, in part, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. You know, that was kind of, that act was kind of a um, legislative response because that, act, the RIFRA requires at least as it currently exists, the federal government to take into account the impact of its policies on uh, religious institutions. So even, even if a federal regulation is neutral and generally applicable, under RIFRA, the federal government has to consider the, re the impact on religion. And that was kind of a response to, uh, to, to the Smith to the well, Smith holding. Well, if we looked on the road too, you know, if there's ever a way to get the Equality Act, then if they repeal, you know, if they overturn the Smith decision, then what does that do for equality versus RIFRA? Because the Equality Act has that superseding language over RIFRA in it. This yeah, case, so this case it, gets messy quick. It's why I always say, like, I always advocate for the Equality Act because I think we need it. Yeah, oh, I do too. But in the next breath, I always say, and we need the ERA. And it, it's because if we get the Equality Act, yes, the Equality Act um, explicitly takes precedence over RIFRA in saying that, you know, it, it, sexual orientation and gender identity would have to be treated, you know, given equal protection under uh, uh, federal laws. But still, the Equality Act is a, is a federal statute, which the Constitution takes priority over. And so even if the Equality Act is passed, there will be no doubt challenges based on the free exercise clause of the of the first amendment to policies passed under the equality act i mean it's just going to happen that's going to be religious institutions next uh, next avenue of 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 fighting 
And so the ERA being a subsequent constitutional amendment could then take priority over, over those kind of issues. So anyway, we need, we need the Equality Act, but let's keep also pushing for the ERA as well. Well, the third, well, it has been ratified by 38 states, but I don't think the way it's gone, the, how long it took and with all the, you know, extensions and timeframes gone by and, you know, we're pushing on 40 years now. I don't, I don't think, I think basically that's going to have to be a re- complete restart at this point, but that's another conversation for another time. Yeah, I, I don't think we have time to get into whether, you know, in detail, of course, you know, I would love to take the position that the um, the ERA now that it's been ratified by 38 states, you know, it should it should it should be good. Um, well, and you're sitting in the 38th state. Right, exactly. Yeah, down here in Virginia. Um, so that that in and of itself will be challenged if you know, I don't, I don't think we have enough time now to do a deep dive on that, but we'll save that for another day. We'll save that for another day. Jamie, it's late. It is a late evening. Yeah. yeah. 10 o'clock past 10 p.m. on a Sunday night. So, you know, I know uh, when we did, we did, we did at the beginning of the year, kind of our, um, you know, the Biden administration stuff. And, and we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly kind of back then of, 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 of future cases. And, you know, Fulton was kind of in that, maybe not ugly side, but kind of bad future case category. Um, and I, I guess the only thing we can take the the only solace we can take is that it was bad but it's not as bad as it could have been yeah and uh, you know you know and i also kind of thought this episode might be a hundred plus 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 day review of the biden administration but as administrations go the biden administration you know they're not perfect on every issue but i think for lgbtq issues and what they're doing for our community this is the best administration in history for us Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's infinitely better than the last administration. And, you know, in, in every area, they are uh, looking at the impact on the LGBTQ community and promoting interpretations of federal law that that require companies to take our interests in, um, in, into account. So I in completely the opposite way that from what the, the previous administration was doing. So, yep. Well, thanks for coming back on our general counsel. Not only will you be coming on and doing some legal stuff, but I know we have you on the calendar to co-host in a few weeks uh, when we're talking about your one of your favorite um, topics, which will be uh, gender and the bimodal representation of gender. So I know you're looking forward to that conversation. I can hardly wait to discuss it. <laughs> oh, I know. You, you, you know that one very well, and I've seen your PowerPoint on it, so... I know this is one when I mentioned it to you, you're like, oh, I want to be on that one. I'm like, okay, we can do that. But uh, we'll probably be back in about four, four-ish weeks with another legal episode. What do you think? That sounds great. Yeah. All right. Sounds great. Well, thanks for coming on again, Jamie. We will talk and see you shortly. I guess we should say good night now. What do you think? Good night. <laughs> good night.